Well, hello, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This one is a Boomer Boulevard show that was originally broadcast on the 22nd of October back in 2018. We hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. A very good show for you tonight. <laughs> How was that? How was that for Bela Lugosi, huh? That's my crackerjack impersonation. Boy, you hear a lot of that this time of year. You know what I was thinking about? Well, I'll talk to you. I'll tell you about it. In a this is Bob Bro. Welcome, everybody. This is Boomer Boulevard. This is the podcast where we play old-time radio shows that we remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. But everybody's welcome and everybody loves these great old shows when they hear them. Come on in, come on in. The, uh, the clubhouse is open. The peanut gallery is filling up. We have refreshments over here. And uh, Chester is uh, over there mixing some toddies right now for those of you that are interested. And anyway, welcome to Boomer Boulevard. We have a great show for you this week. We have a very kind of spooky, scary uh, episode of suspense. Nothing hobgoblin. I don't go in for that stuff, but it. But there's a lot of real people in this world that scare you real good, let me tell you that. And then we're going to have uh, a show that we've never, a program we've never played before, Mutual Radio Theater. And uh, a really good story on that one. Talk about that a little later. And then an episode of Gunsmoke we've never played before called The Hanging Man. So make yourself comfortable, and we're going to get started in just a minute.
What I was going to start to say there earlier was when I was a kid back in Long Beach, California in the 50s, there was a show that came on Channel 5 in Los Angeles, KTLA. I think it was on Friday nights, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, it was called Nightmare, and it was one of those shows that later they had Jeepers Creepers and Vampira and some of those other shows, but this was the first one in L.A., and it was... They would play old spooky movies like Frankenstein and Dracula and things like that. The old movies from the 30s, the old Universal movie. They had an old woman who was a host, and her name was Adela Nesbitt. And I always thought that that was like a stage name. Kind of reminded you of a Margaret Hamilton type, like the Wicked Witch of the West, you know? East, whichever one it was. But this woman, they would show her walking up this alley. She'd be dressed in all black. She'd have a shopping bag. And she would go in this little apartment and she would uh, get out her old Victrola, the kind you crank up, and she'd have some old records. And she would look at the records and she would start remembering. Like the record might be Frankenstein. She would remember old bars. Oh, I remember Boris. She would tell little stories about Boris Carlo or Bella Lugosi or Lon Chaney or, or whomever. And then she would put the record on and crank it up and sit down and the movie would start like the record was actually a movie. At any rate, I hadn't thought about her for years. But I always thought that was a stage name and I just looked her up now and come to find out that she was an actual actress named Audley Nesmith. She used her own name. And she would play a lot of these kind of creepy, scary old women. But if anyone's from L.A. and remembers Otto Nesmith, she used to host Nightmare, was the name of the show. And I remember at the end of each show, all of a sudden you'd hear a bell chime. And she would always say, Oh, 12 o'clock. All the stores are closed. It's time to go shopping. And she would get up and then they would show her walking down this it's dark out I don't know what made me think of that I guess with all the creepy stuff that goes on this time of year which kind of leads us into our creepy first show And our first show is an episode of Suspense, and we're going all the way back to 1945, a little further back than we normally go for this one. But this is a good show. Now, I don't play anything that has to do with uh, ghosts or hobgoblins or demonic forces. I just, I don't, I'm not into that, okay? I just, uh, I avoid that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean you can't be creeped out or scared pretty good because there's some pretty scary people running around. And a case in point is the show that we have tonight. 
entitled Death on Highway 99. Now, the only star that was mentioned for this was George Murphy, and we'll talk a little bit about him on the other side. But the first half of this show really gets scary. I was listening to it in the dark, and I kind of wanted to turn the light on. And uh, the second half, well, not so much, but the first half, the second half is very dramatic and suspenseful, but, uh, well, you'll see. So here we go, back to 1945 for an episode of Suspense and Death on Highway 99. Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Mr. George Murphy, a star of Death on Highway 99, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense. Dear Julie, the clock here in my room just struck seven, which means I have about an hour for writing this letter to you. I guess already you've said, who's this from? What goes? So I'll tell you right off. Remember Morton Blake? Speed Blake, they called me in high school? The guy who sat behind you in Algebra 2 and Chemistry? That was more than seven years ago. And I'm writing to you because there's no one else in the world that I give a darn about. There never has been, Julie, since I saw you the first time. Well, I sure had other plans about you, and that's probably a surprise, too, because I never had the nerve to let you know that I was alive before. But as it is with me now, this letter is all you'll ever know. A letter telling you what a mess I've made of things, what a mess I've made of my life. You see, Julie, it's because I always decided too late what to do, because I always was a coward. That's why I never spoke to you and, and told you back then what I thought about you until it was too late and you had married someone else. That's why I'm writing the last letter I'll ever write to a girl who can't even remember my face. That's why I'm waiting for Captain Shannon to come and get me. You see, Julie, I'm a murderer. Yes, in just a little while, I'll see the squad car pull up outside and then all the fumbling and the mistakes will be over. But I want you to understand, that's all. Because it really was all her fault, Pauline's. Do you remember Pauline? She was that strawberry blonde who hated you so much. Of course she hated you. Pauline hated everyone. She was so sharp and mean and not like you. But when you got married, I married Pauline just to show myself that I didn't care. Just because she was there handy and you were lost. It was five long years we were clawing at each other like two cats tied up in a sack. Right up to that last night, She'd gone to a show, alone, and I picked her up afterwards. And I was a little late, so she really began riding me. She was in a fine One mood. thing after another. I tell you, I've just about had my fill, Mort. I've stood it as much as I'm going to. As much of what? As much of what? Oh, look, Pauline, I work late. I'm tired. Why don't you just sit there and be quiet? Yes, you'd like that, wouldn't you? You'd like it if I was deaf and dumb. Well, you won't shut me up, Morton Blake. When I want to talk, I'll talk. 
What are you stopping for? A boulevard stop sign. Oh, for, isn't that silly? It's almost two in the morning. There isn't a car in sight. Look, Pauline, let me drive the car, will you? All right, sure, sure. Take your time. After I waited almost an hour in the cold. You don't care about anybody but yourself. Pauline. What? Look, let's stop kidding ourselves. Let's be honest for five minutes. Honest? You're a fine one to speak about being honest. I just wonder if it really was work that kept you tonight. After all, I know oh, a couple of things... Oh, forget that, will you? And listen, what I'm trying to say is that our marriage is finished. You know it and I know it. And it's, it, it was no good before we started. Yes, and whose fault was that, may I ask? I know what you were thinking of then. I know who you were mooning about. I know that. All right, all right. But why should you and I go on? Why don't we just call the whole thing off? You've been working too hard, Mort. You're delirious. You really think I'd ever give you a divorce? Well, it's as bad for you as it is for me, Pauline. Why not? I got my reasons. But we're wasting our lives. You're still young and pretty. And you could get a much better deal. You think you could, too, don't you, Mort? Well, I, I don't know. Well, just because you want your freedom so much, it's no go. Because I like to make you squirm. Because I loathe and despise you. Do you get me, Mort? Yes. Yes, Pauline, I get you. Let's, uh, let's don't talk anymore. Let's forget it. Look, you don't have to speed just because we're having... Look, a minute ago I was going too slow. You said I... Never mind what I said. Stop going so fast. Well, I'm under the limit. Dry up. Mort, we'll turn over. I said dry up. Mort, the... there's someone on the road. Martin! Look out! You're going to hit him! You hit him. You hit him. You stay in the car, Pauline. Don't go, Mort. Don't go. Maybe he's dead. Oh, maybe. You, you stay where you are. He's, he's moving. Hey, mister. Mister, can you hear me, mister? Oh, not your fault. Couldn't see me in the dark. Uh, don't, don't try to talk. Here, look, just hang on to me. I'll, I'll get you into the car. There you are. You're on your feet. Uh, who are you? Name Haggerty. Okay, Mr. Haggerty. Now, now take it easy. I'll take you to a doctor. Yes, yes, doctor, quickly. Doctor, quickly. He's passed out. Pauline, open the back door. Is, is he dead? No, no, he's alive. There, now if we hurry. We've got to get him to the hospital right away. Well, now there's the result of your temper, Mort. My temper? Well, you know it wasn't my fault. He jumped right in front of the wheels. Oh, not your fault, not your fault. He doesn't seem to think it was your fault either. Well, it wasn't. You saw. He ran right off from the side without looking. Yeah, you're lucky. As usual, Mort. Lucky? What are you talking about? Well, the streets are completely deserted. Well, it's late. What's so strange about that? Nothing. Only there weren't any witnesses. That's right. No witnesses except him and you. That's right. Him and me. What's your hurry, Morton? What's my... Why, I've got to get him to the hospital. He may be dying. No, Mort. He's not dying. You don't have to hurry. He's dead. dead. She said it just like that, like she was handing me a birthday present. I pulled the car to the curb and got into the back seat. The old man was sprawled across the cushions. His head twisted back. When I put my face down, there wasn't a whisper of any breathing on my cheek. I slipped my hand inside his coat, still as a stone, not a flicker from his heart. I crawled back under the wheel and sat there thinking. Mort. Yeah. You know what you've done? 
Yeah. He's dead. That means you're guilty of... What is it, Mort? Murder? No. No, it's not murder. Or manslaughter. And even manslaughter will mean prison, won't it, Mort? I said manslaughter will mean prison, won't it? Prison? Well, no. No, it wasn't my fault. You heard him say so. Yeah. If I testify that I heard, then you'll get off. Is that it? Why, well, you'll have to testify, or else... Or else what, Morton? Or else I'll be sent up. There weren't any other witnesses. That's right, Morton. Hey, what are you trying to tell me? Mort, you must have imagined that poor man said it wasn't your fault. What? Because I didn't hear him say a thing. You're lying. You're lying, Pauline. You heard him. As soon as I put him in the car, he said it. He said it's not your fault. Can you prove it, Mort? Can I prove? This is what I wanted, Morton. I'll have my freedom, but you won't have yours. You'll be that jailbird, Speed Blake, and you'll have years and years and years to think about all the other girls you used to know. Won't you, Mort? I looked at her. She had a thin smile on her lips. I got a crawling feeling at the back of my neck. I held under the wheel so tight that my knuckles began to ache. Well, Morton, what are you waiting for? What was I waiting for? What had I always waited for? Well, Morton... I began to think of something. A line that my beloved wife's ran through my brain. She said, no witnesses. There were no witnesses. Why wait, Mort? Be a man. No witnesses. No witnesses. I could dump the old man's body somewhere on the edge of town. No one would be the wiser. No, no one but Pauline. But... But what if there was no Pauline? Where are you going? This isn't the way, Mort. Mort! Morton, look at the speedometer. I tell you, you're going the wrong way. Well, we're way past the city limits. Morton. Morton, stop this car at once. Stop it, do you hear? Okay. Okay, I'll stop the car, Pauline. Mort, you... You didn't really believe me when I said I wouldn't testify, did you, Mort? Yes. Yes, I believed you. But I was only kidding. I wouldn't think of not telling... I believed you, Pauline. But you know I'd never do it. I believed you, so I'm going to kill you. You're... You're joking. Am I? You wouldn't dare. And anyway, how could you? Look outside, Pauline. Did you notice where we are? What do you mean? We're on Austin Bluff. Remember the cliff? It's just ahead. Morton. Must be at least 300 feet to the bottom. Pretty picture, huh, baby? Oh, please. Come on. Please, Morton, I... Come on, get out of the car. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. yes, yes. We're no. going for a walk, Pauline. No, no. Nice walk no. in the moonlight, just you and me. After five years, we ought to have a little romance, we two. She didn't budge. Her eyes blazed at me. I got out of the car and closed the door. Walked around to the other side to pull her out. But she locked the door from the inside before I got there. I ran fast back to the other side. I wasn't fast enough. She'd locked that door. And the back doors, too. She and Haggerty were locked in. Oh, it made me crazy wild to see her white face in there. The face that had kept me from anything a guy could want in life. Come on, open up. Open the door. You can't get away. I've got the key, so quit stalling. Open up. Hey, stop it. Stop that horn or I'll... 
Okay, I'll fix that. Won't keep that racket up for long, sweetheart. Let's see now. Let's see, which one is it? Oh, there. Got him. You see, Pauline? You'd be smart to come on out and get it over with. I pressed my face against the glass. She was crouched down in the front seat. Her eyes watched every move I made. She was trapped and she knew it. I could see Haggerty in the back seat. His head still twisted back. His eyes were shut. His sprawled old body had a look of pain and surprise. Even wild like I was, I felt bad about him. But I had to hurry. Pauline was fooling with the lights, flashing them on and off. I fell around on the ground till I found a good solid rock. I picked it up and I showed it to her. Open up. It's your last chance or I smash the window. Okay, whatever you say, baby. Here we go. Come on. No, Come no. on, now for that walk. Oh, no, more! don't hurt me, please, Mark. Come on. Please, Come on. No, I'll Mark, stop that screaming. Oh. oh, I think it's a clear drop here. No ledge. That's right. Oh, see that glow down there? That's water. Taylor Creek. Clear all the way down. Oh, oh you want to talk, huh? Okay. Talk. You can even yell. No one will hear you now. Mort, I promise I won't turn you in. You're not the kind of a person to kill. Mort, you can't do it. Mort, please. Can't Mort, I, huh? Don't. Oh, please, You'd be surprised me. what I no, can do, Mort. Pauline. No, don't. Mort, please. Goodbye, baby. <laughs> Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you a star, Mr. George Murphy, in Death on Highway 99 by Larry Marcus and Robert Light, a play well calculated to keep you in suspense. Yes, Julie, I did it. And when you get this letter, you'll be the only person who'll really know why, who'll know that I'm only sorry that I didn't kill her sooner. All right, so you can't quite remember which guy I was, if I was the tall one or the red-headed one, or if you spoke to me when you saw me in the hall. That doesn't matter to you or to me now. What matters is that I lived with her for five years. Five years I might have spent at least thinking about you. Well, it was done. I climbed back in the car. The clock on the dash said 20 after 2. I still had to get rid of the old man's body before daylight, so I started driving. When I came to a strip of forest along the road, I stopped my car and I got out. And right then, the beam of a spotlight pinned me in my tracks. I didn't move. I saw it was a cop. Hey, what you doing there? He started walking toward me, rolling his motorcycle. No parking anywhere along the highway, mister. Okay, officer. Okay, I, I didn't know. This ain't no lover's lane. You gotta keep moving. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll get going right away, officer. Say, uh, you're not carrying any vegetables in your car, are you? Uh, uh, vegetables? No. There's no, a I... beetle thing going on again. I just better take a look in the back there. Oh, there, there's hey. nothing in there, honest. What? Uh, listen. Where does that guy think he's going? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he's speeding all right, isn't he? Say, am I going to slap a ticket onto him? Hey, but you clear out of here, mister, and don't ever park in this highway again. No, no, officer, I won't. Never again. So I took another road and got back on Highway 99. By then, I felt jittery. 
I smoked one cigarette after another and the sweat was rolling down my face. I found another spot and this time I made sure I was alone. Then I parked the car and I opened the back door. I reached in for Haggerty's body. He was still limp and warm and really I was sorry about him. You see, that proves I wasn't a killer. That proves it was her fault, Pauline's. And if she hadn't been like she was, I never would have killed. Not anyone. Well, I got the old man out onto the road and I left him there. put the car in the garage and looked it over to see that everything was okay. No blood on the seat. That was a break. The window was broken, of course, but I could fix that. There was mud on the tires, so I got out the garden hose and washed them down. Then I went into the house. I, I was pretty nervous. I knew I'd have to be on my toes for the next three or four days, so, so I took a couple of sleeping pills. They did the trick. I was asleep the minute my head hit the pillow. telephone sounded like it was ringing miles away. I didn't know if it was day or night when I stumbled down the hall, shaking my head, trying to, trying to clear my brain. Hello? Hello? Is this Martin Blake? Uh, yes. This is Sergeant Graham down at headquarters. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, anything wrong? I uh, got some bad news for you, Blake. Uh, bad news? Yeah. A report just came in from the East Precinct. A couple of campers found a body at the bottom of the cliff. Yes? Well, it's tough to tell you, but, well, the body's been identified as your wife, Pauline. It looked like an accident. They didn't suspect a thing. I was in the clear. The sleeping pills were still working. I wanted to go back to bed, but I didn't dare. I had to get down to that morgue right away to identify what was left of Pauline. I thought that might throw me, but I was as cold as steel when they took me in to see her. They were watching me, so I pulled an act. Hey, 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 take it easy, take it easy there. Here, sit down here. Oh. I got you some water. Oh, thanks. I, I'm, I'm all, all right now. Yeah, take a swallow of this. Oh, thank you. Gee, I, uh, I guess you must get pretty hard into these things. After a while. Yeah, I see him every day. I don't know. I never really get used to it. We had another sad case this morning. Uh, another accident? Yeah. They brought in an old fella. Found him on Highway 99. Smacked by a hit-and-run driver. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a nasty business. Of course, this old man isn't dead, but still, you know... Hey, you're jumpy. Yeah, I'll get you another glass. Oh, thanks. You see... Seeing my wife, I guess. Sure, I... I understand. Yeah. Just take it easy now. Thank you. Feel better? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, you were telling me the, the old man wasn't dead? No. And just by luck, one of the boys got a very faint heartbeat when he felt his pulse. We went to work on him fast, and looks like he's going to pull through. Well, that, that's sure a break. Uh, for him, I mean. Yeah. He's at the receiving hospital. The report is he's coming along fine. Got a bad smack in the head. Lost his memory. Oh. Uh, for, for good? No, no. They say it's only temporary. Oh. They think when he snaps out of it, he may even remember the dirty rat that hit him. Haggerty was alive. Alive. Well, of course, I should have been glad. 
The poor old guy had never done anything to me. But I couldn't think that way then. Haggerty was alive, and he'd remember me. And he'd remember Pauline was with me. I almost gave up. I almost shouted, all right, I did it. I killed my wife. But something kept me fighting. Long enough to get out of there. Long enough to drive to the hospital where Haggerty was. It was an awful chance to take, but I couldn't stay away. I was just walking up to the desk to find out his room number. Mr. Blake. Aren't you Morton Blake? Uh, oh, y yes. Yes, I, I, I am. I'm Captain Shannon from headquarters. I just saw you down at the morgue. Oh, oh yes, I, I I, didn't remember. Yeah, well, can't tell you how sorry I am about your wife. Oh, thank you very much, Captain. I... Mm. Funny running into you here. Y yes, I, uh, I, well, uh, uh, I thought I'd find out if I could get a room and, and uh, take a rest for a few days. I uh, feel pretty well shot. Yes, I can imagine. But I don't think you have a chance the way hospitals are crowded. You better get your rest at home. Get a friend to stay with you. Yes, I, I guess you're right, Captain. I'd drive you home, but I get called down on this hit-and-run case. Oh, oh, the, the old man, the attendant at the morgue was telling me. He was? Oh, I shouldn't talk to you about such things the way you feel. Oh, but it looks like it all turned out all right. The old man's only shocked, not even a bad bruise or broken bone. He's conscious now, so I'm going up to talk to him. You, you, uh, do, do you think he'll know who hit him? Well, they said over the phone he has a good description, and even if it isn't good, we've got the tire print of the car and the footprint of the driver. You have? From where? Yeah, there was a lot of mud where the car stopped. The driver was careless. That kind usually are. Oh, uh, there's a doctor on the case now. Oh, Dr. Leeds. Yes? I was just going to walk up and talk to the old Haggerty. Oh, yes, I know. Did the nurse tell you he described the driver, Captain? He yeah. did? I'm going to take it down and then make the arrest. Fine, but would you mind waiting about two hours? The old man's sleeping now, and rest is important to a man his age. Mine, Doctor? No. What's time to me? It's two hours more for the hit-and-run driver, whoever he is, to wonder just how smart he really was. And we know the answer. So, Julie, I'm waiting now. I'm writing you all this because I got a crazy idea that you have a right to know. You, a girl I knew seven years ago, who won't remember me, who won't remember that nickname, Speed, or if I had freckles. I did. Or if you signed my book on class day. You didn't because I didn't have the nerve to ask you. So maybe it isn't a real girl at all that I'm writing this to. I guess I'm writing to... to how I failed. To how I never did anything in time. To how I thought good and acted bad. You see, what I think you were adds up to how much I failed. I guess every guy in the world has someone like you. A girl in a blue dress. And success is having her now, not back long way in the past. They drove up now. Captain Shannon and, yes, a couple of cops. And Haggerty. Old Haggerty's walking. Okay. Well, I only got seconds to get ready for them. So goodbye, Julie. Goodbye. <laughs> All right, you can come in. It isn't locked. I've run 
want Mr. Haggerty, Blake. I think we all ought to have a little talk. Oh, sure. Sure, I know. This is the man, isn't it, Haggerty? Oh, yes, but uh, I told you, Captain, it wasn't his fault. You told him? You told him what? Of course. I stepped out and you couldn't miss hitting me. But he left you there. You might have been dying, Haggerty. I know. He, he got scared. I don't blame him. I'm not going to make any charges, Captain, and that's that. Well, I guess that's all, Blake. Oh. Oh. You ought to be happy about it. But but didn't he tell you about Pauline? About my wife? What about your wife? Well, that, that she was with me in the car? Last night? Your wife was with you? Haggerty. He, he didn't tell you? And now, now it's too late. I, well, what's I, wrong with you, Blake? Somebody get some water. It's too late. I, I took cyanide when you drove up. It's too late. You see, I killed Pauline. But Haggerty never said... I know, I know now. He didn't see her. He passed out before I put him in the car. But it's too late. It's funny about me, Captain. I was always too late. And they used to call me Speed. Oh, Speed Blake. Wines have brought you George Murphy as star of Death on Highway 99. Tonight's study in Suspense. George Murphy appeared through the courtesy of Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Producers of our vines have tender grapes. Next Thursday, you will hear Mr. Joseph Cotton as star of Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Got a little strange there at the end, but uh, suspenseful. But that first half was scary. I don't care what you say. That, uh, the screen, oh, that actress was really good. I wish I knew who that was. The only person that was given credit, as you heard, was, was George Murphy. That was Death on Highway 99, which is a major north and south uh, highway in California. It goes right up through the San Joaquin Valley. We used to drive that all the time when I was a kid to go up and see our relatives up around Porterville, California. Anyway, that one was originally broadcast on CBS on the 4th of October in 19... 19- 45. Suspense. They never got tired of saying that, did they? In fact, I cut a couple out where he go keeps going, uh, this is a tale calculated to keep you in suspense. And here's George Murphy in the play entitled Death on Highway 99, which will keep you in suspense. Oh, they kind of overdid that. But that was a great show nonetheless. That and Escape both. George Murphy, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about him, if you don't remember. He was a dancer who worked with his wife on uh, Broadway, and her name was Julie Johnson, I believe. And in 1934, she retired from show business, 
But he went on to dance on stage. And eventually, in Hollywood, he worked with Shirley Temple, with Eleanor Powell, with Fred Astaire, and even with Ronald Reagan. In 1945, George Murphy became president of the Screen Actors Guild. He retired from the silver screen in 1952, and he, at that time, became a TV producer. But he also became a politician, much like his friend Mr. Reagan. In fact, he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1964. And you know who he beat? His opponent was Pierre Salinger, who had been the press secretary for John F. Kennedy. In fact, Murphy trounced him, uh, beating by a big margin. Well, during his time in the Senate, which was 1965 to 1971, he contracted throat cancer, and it made it necessary for him to have his larynx removed. And that, of course, made him unable to speak above a whisper, and that's the way he was for the remainder of his life. George Murphy died in 1992 in Palm Beach, Florida, but he was kind of a memorable character, one of the first people to make the transition from show business into politics, and of course, then uh, Mr. Mr. Reagan followed right behind. George Murphy, a lot of times I remember uh, back when I was young, and they would talk about him when he was in the Senate and whatnot, they used to show films of him being a hoofer, is the way they, they used to put it. This song, entitled Understanding by Bob Seger, was introduced in the motion picture Teachers. And it's very important because I just can't, can't tolerate doing nothing on this show that is educational. We need to feed you folks some education. You have to go out and tell your friends that if you listen to Boomer Boulevard, you'll, you'll get smart, you see. 
And so that's my intention here, and we are going to play a little history lesson for you in the form of the Mutual Radio Theater. But don't worry, it's pretty entertaining too, let me tell you that. First off, let me tell you a little bit about the Mutual Radio Theater. It started off in 1979 as the Sears Radio Theater on CBS. It was an anthology series which ran every night of the week. In January of 1980, the program was moved to the Mutual Broadcasting System and became the Mutual Radio Theater. The Mutual uh, series repeated uh, many of the CBS shows until September of 1980 when they presented a short season of new dramas. And Mutual continued to broadcast repeats of the program along with a few previously unaired episodes until the end of 1981. Now, this was one of the things that was unique about it. Each night of the week, there was a different theme. Westerns were on Monday night, and they were hosted by Lauren Green. Tuesday night was comedy with Andy Griffith. Wednesday night was mystery night with Vincent Price as the host. Thursday was love and hate night with Cicely Tyson doing the honors. And then finally, Friday was adventure night. And that had the, first of all, had the host of Richard Widmark, or he was the first host. Then later it was Howard Duff, and then finally Leonard Nimoy. One of the neat things about this is that this was really an effort to resurrect radio drama in the late 70s and early 80s, long after its, its passing. But many of the great radio actors were still around and they were employed on this show. For instance, Jim Jordan w- appeared on it, Fibber McGee. There was also Henry Morgan, Dawes Butler, June Foray, Parley Bear, Mary Jane Croft, Howard Culver, John Daner, uh, Virginia Gregg, Janet Waldo, Vic Perrin, Hans Conrad, Marvin Miller, Elliot Lewis, Jeff Corey, who you're going to hear tonight, Robert Rockwell, who you're going to hear tonight, Lorene Tuttle, Eve Arden, Harriet Nelson, Alan Young, Tom Bosley, Marion Ross. Oh, it just goes on and on. Uh, even Tony Tennille, the singer had an appearance on one, Arthur Hill, Dan O'Herlihy, Jesse White, and Frank Nelson. Peggy Weber appeared on 52 different episodes. The show was produced and directed by Fletcher Markle and Elliot Lewis, and the theme was composed by Nelson Riddle. What we're going to listen to tonight is one that came on, let's see, this has, uh, well, it was considered Western Night because you're going to hear Lorne Green as the um, narrator here tonight, or the host. But this was Mutual Radio Theater as it played on the 28th of April in 1980, folks, in 1980. It's entitled Vinnie Ream. And rather than me tell you about her, I think this show speaks for itself. So if you don't know who Vinnie Ream is, you're in for a treat. And if you are familiar with her, I think this is going to fill in some information that perhaps you didn't know before. Here it comes. This is Lorne Green. Her name was Vinnie Ream. She was a child of the frontier, born in Indian summer in the year 1847, on the very edge of the wilderness. Her father was a surveyor for the United States of America when it was a fledgling giant struggling to realize its true size and might and destiny. He was one of the few curious and courageous men who charted the unknown regions of the young country. Years later, 
after an illness disabled him, making him old before his time. His daughter Vinnie would recall him coming home from surveying trips, hapless, the wind and sun in his hair. She would especially remember his last return, his slow walk up the hill, looking for her in their secret place. Oh, you're home. Finally home. I knew I'd find you here. I thought you'd be coming home today. Oh. I waited here for you. Well, and how long have you been waiting, Vinny? Oh, hours, I suppose. But it doesn't ever seem like time passes when I'm here. I feel swallowed up in this place, a part of it. Yeah, have you been seeing your faces and figures? Yes, and I found a new one. See there, up along the ridge, how the rocks hang together, so jagged and craggy? Do you see, Pa? Mm, yeah. It's an old man's face. <laughs> Only you can see it as I do. <laughs> yes, it's an old man's face. Ah, you love it here, don't you, Vinny? You'd, you'd be sorry to leave. Yes, very sorry. You look tired, Papa. Oh, it was a long trip. And I think my last. Vinny, how would you like to live in the city? What city? Washington. I've never lived in a city. What is it like? Well, for one thing, there are faces and figures in marble and bronze, not clouds and rock. They're real statues that you could you could see and touch. It sounds wonderful. I'd like that. But I should miss this place terribly, Pa. Yeah, so would I. I'd miss that old man up there. <laughs> for me, it's like looking in a mirror. But you're not old. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel old. In Washington, I I could find a slower job, quieter. You're tired, Pa. Let's go down to the house. Vinnie Ream was destined to leave her home in the wilderness. It was as if she were following one of her father's careful and precise maps. The course was clear for her. In Washington, a man awaited her. A man whose roots were in the West as hers were... A man of large importance and vast melancholy. A man not unlike her father in spirit. He waited to shape Vinnie Ream's life and to give to her her greatest triumph. His name was Abraham Lincoln. They would meet in Washington. And that's only the beginning of our story. Mutual Radio Theater, a new adventure in radio listening. Five nights of exceptional entertainment every week, brought to you in Elliot Lewis's production of the Mutual Radio Theater. Our story, Vinnie Ream, by Pamela Russell. Our stars, Joan McCall, Robert Rockwell, and Jeff Corey. Washington in 1864 was a hauntingly incomplete city. The Capitol Dome was bare scaffolding, and the Washington Monument fell far short of its intended height. Some frightened citizens saw it all as an omen, a sign that the war would end in the defeat of the Union, that General Lee's army would invade and burn Washington before it was ever a finished city. But for 16-year-old Vinnie Ream, it was a place of excitement, totally different from the wilds she had known, and it filled her with dreams and ambitions. She was a clerk in the post office. She took the job to help her family. 
Many girls were working, replacing young men who had gone in proud blue uniforms to serve and save their country. Vinny was a great favorite in the post office, a tiny, swift-moving girl with long black curls down her back. Vinny, it's lunchtime. I just want to finish this. You write so quickly, but still it comes out so clear and beautiful. Mr. Abercrombie says my hand is like muddy chicken prints. <laughs> there, all done. Let's go outside and eat. It smells so awful in here. It's sad to think of all the mothers and sisters, daughters and sweethearts who send their soldiers food. And it never reaches them. It sits here and rots. Yes. And we have to sit here and smell it. Come on, Jenny. <laughs> Let's sit here in this patch of sun. Oh, the light should be wonderful this afternoon. After work, I think I'll walk over to Lafayette Square. All I ever want to do after work is take a nap. Doesn't it wear you out, Vinny? Oh, I get a little tired sometimes. It was hardest in the beginning. I don't know why, but I always feel better after I stand for a while in front of the Andrew Jackson statue in the square. You like statues, don't you? Yes, I do. Uh, how's your father, Vinny? The same. Paul hardly ever leaves his room anymore. I miss him. You know, it's as if the Paul I knew went away and left behind someone who resembles him, but isn't really him. Oh, did I tell you we've taken a border? No. Senator Ross from Kansas. He's all alone in the city. His family's back home. He's an old friend of my father's. Ma says it'll help having him with us. Times are hard. I only wish I could do more to help. You do as much as a full-grown man, Vinny. Working all day in the office, performing the hospitals for the soldiers at night, singing in two different choirs on Sundays. I still can't quite believe that the churches pay me to sing. Why wouldn't they? Anyone would. You sing beautifully. Maybe you'll even sing on the stage someday. Uh, Ma says it's not a decent occupation. You, but if you love a thing and do it well, how could it be indecent, I wonder? It doesn't seem right that you shouldn't be able to be a singer if you want to, Vinny. Maybe it isn't singing. But I know that I was meant to do something very different from other people. I was born to live a different kind of life. What do you mean, Vinny? I, I don't see things the way other people do. I remember the first day, the very first day I came to Washington... <laughs> I saw President Lincoln driving through the streets in an open carriage. I'd never seen a face like his. I chased after the carriage, hoping to see him for a moment longer. It stopped, and I stopped. I stood and watched him. And then I looked down at my hands, and they were moving. I wasn't moving them. They were moving by themselves, independent of me. Well, the carriage drove away finally, and... There I was, standing ankle-deep in mud, <laughs> the hem of my best dress ruined, and my hands tingling. I look for him everywhere now, Jane, hoping to see him again. I carried his face in my mind for so long, but it's beginning to fade. I feel I have to see him again. Sounds like you're in love with him. Oh, no, 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 it's not like that. It's his face. There is everything in his face. I tried to write a poem about him, but words can't describe. Maybe someday there'll be a statue made of him, and that'll say it. Maybe you'll make the statue, Vinny. For certain, you're not like other folks. 
I expect you could do just about anything you set your mind to do. You're not like anybody else. And there's nobody better to be with than you, Vinny. Thank you, Jane. Even when I was a little girl, way back as far as I can remember, I could see faces and forms in the mountains and the clouds. Only Pa understood and could see them, too. I wish this war was over and all the boys were home again. <laughs> and working in the post office. <laughs> yes. Uh-oh, right now Mr. Abercrombie is peering out the window at us. He's always peering somewhere. Mm, time to go back. Take a deep breath while you still can, then. <sighs> Someday I'll tell people that I worked here and they won't believe me. <laughs> yes. Someday when you're famous, Vinny, I'll tell people that I knew you and they won't believe me. <laughs> I'll send them over here to Mr. Abercrombie. He'll be here forever, and he'll tell all. Vinny went often to Lafayette Square to stand before the Jackson statue. It was one of her secret dreams to meet the sculptor, Clark Mills, who had his studio in Washington. She confessed this one day to their boarder, Senator Ross, and the following Saturday, not quite believing what was happening to her, she found herself on her way with the senator to the sculptor's studio. Will we just walk right in? Yes. Mills never locks a door. Everyone knows that if you walk into the studio and he speaks, then it's all right. But if he does not speak and continues on with his work, then you just turn and walk out without a word to him. Oh, I hope he speaks to us. I hope we won't have to leave right away. I've never been so close to a sculptor's studio, and it was so difficult to talk minds letting me come today. I shall just die if I have to walk away and not have even a word with him. Don't worry. I have a feeling we'll be welcome, Vinny. Aren't you welcomed everywhere you go? Doesn't everyone always want you with them? I don't know. I, I never really thought of it. It's quite true. You have a special quality that attracts people. They're drawn to you. Why should Clark Mills be any different? But he uh, might be very busy working. There is one sure way to find out. Let's go in. This is it? We're here? Yes, Vinny. Uh, I pray he speaks. Hello, Senator. Mills, hello. Well, I see that you brought your little friend. Yes. Clark Mills, this is Miss Vinnie Reem. How do you do, Mr. Mills? Very well, very well. And how old are you, Miss Reem? Sixteen, sir. Are you certain of that? Why, yes, sir. I'm certain of my age. You're so very small. Perhaps I only appear so because you are so very large, Mr. Mills. Must a sculptor be so very big? Well, not afraid to speak up, are you? No, sir. It helps, Miss Reem, to be large. Why do you ask? Do you want to be a sculptor? Yes. But the truth is, I never really thought of it until now. But yes, I do. Being here, I feel as if... as if I'd come home. I love the look and the smell of this room. I belong here. Until this afternoon, I wanted to sing, but... but now all that seems so far away. Yes, Mr. Mills, I want to be a sculptor. Am I too small? Maybe. My hands are too small? I don't have the strength? Is that, is that what you think? Well, the real question is, have you the will? Have you a large, strong will? Oh, I have that. 
But why don't you ask me if I have the talent? Well, because you couldn't know that about yourself. And besides, talent comes second. First, you must have the will, the indomitable faith. If you do not believe totally in yourself, then no amount of talent will prevail, little one. I understand. All right, then. Here, take this and sculpt me. Oh, I'd rather not sculpt you. What? I'm sorry, Mr. Mills, but I don't know your face well enough yet. I'd rather do something I'm familiar with. I'll do whatever you like, Miss Ream. The senator and I will leave you to your labors. Uh, come, senator. I'll show you a bust I'm doing of one of your colleagues. He's not of your party, but you'll admire him this way in mute clay. <laughs> Where did she come from? Wherever did you find her? I board with Vinnie's family. She's quite a remarkable child. Oh, Vinnie's more than that. I'm finished. You worked very quickly. Let's see what you've done. Here it is. Well, you should have told me that you've studied, Miss Ream. But I haven't. Never? Never, sir. May I ask why you chose to do an Indian? I know Indians. I grew up with them. It is good, Mr. Mills? It's a good beginning. May I study with you? Vinnie, I'm, I'm not sure that your family would, would want you to. You should think of that. What's important to me is if Mr. Mills wants me to. If he thinks that I should, that I could. Do you, Mr. Mills? Do you want me as a pupil? Yes, I do. Then I will be your pupil. Uh, do you know full well all that that entails, little one? I think that I do. Why did you do that? You said it was good. I said it was a good beginning. It was really very bad. But it was mine. No, it was not. It was mine. Everything you do will be mine. You will be mine, my pupil. When that ceases to be true, I will no longer be your teacher. You will no longer be my student. You will be a sculptor. But until then, you will be mine. Can you accept that, Miss Ream? I will try, Mr. Mills. Then we can begin. It was winter in Washington, and the Civil War was in its fourth year. Vinnie had been studying with the sculptor Clark Mills for several months. Seventeen years old, her dream crystallized over the months of hard work and learning. She was obsessed with the idea of sculpting a bust of President Abraham Lincoln. Am I late? I'm sorry. You know you're late or you wouldn't be running. It seems as if there's more mail every day, piles and piles of it. It's difficult to believe that letters are the only contact some have had with their boys in the war in four years. How much longer can it go on? I can hardly remember a time when there wasn't the war. Vinnie, what is it that you want to tell me? Why are you saying so many words and none of them the words you have in your mind? You know me too well. What is it, Vinnie? I stopped somewhere between the post office and here. That's why I'm late. And? And and I just found out that it's been arranged for me to meet with the president. Well, I won't ask how it was arranged. You have a genius for that sort of thing. When is this historic meeting to take place? Tomorrow. Why are you angry? I know why you want to meet Lincoln. You're going to try to persuade him to allow you to sculpt him. Yes. 
It's all that I've dreamed of, thought of for months. And you don't want me to do it. I don't understand you. Why? You're not ready, that's why. Anyway, Lincoln will never agree to it. He's turned away every artist who's come to him requesting him to pose. I know I can convince him. And to think I once questioned whether you had a strong will. I don't know how you contain it in that little body. Sometimes I don't. Like now, I feel I'm bursting. I will sculpt the president. I was meant to do it, and I will. Doesn't it mean anything to you that your teacher has told you that you're not ready? It means something to me. But not enough to stop you? There's nothing that can stop me. Nothing and no one. Lincoln can. He can say no to you. But he won't. Has anyone ever said no to you, Vinny? <laughs> you just did. But you seem not to hear me. There's your answer. People have said no to me, but I haven't heard them. I keep saying yes over and over to myself, and I don't hear them. So you're finally going to see him face to face tomorrow. Yes. Can't you be glad for me? You ask too much of me, Vinnie. Why do you say I'm not ready? Because you're not. You're close, so close. I've never seen anyone, man, woman, or child, soak up knowledge, drink it in, and absorb it the way that you do. You're gifted, supremely gifted, and you've worked very hard. But you're rough yet. Every day you come tearing in here like one possessed, and I give you what you need. You take it all from me. Sometimes I think you'll drain me dry, but I don't care. I'll give everything to you, but we must have more time together. So you're saying that I'm still a student, still yours. I I'm not a sculptor yet, not my own. Uh, yes, exactly, yes. And, and I need more time here with you. Yes. For me or for you? You think that I want to keep you here for myself? Don't you? Yes, I do. I can't bear to think of you going away. Not coming to me anymore, not needing me any longer. I'm here now. Isn't that the most important thing? Yes, you're here now. But already I hear your steps away from me, little one. Miss Vinnie Reem. Yes. Through that door. Oh, this must be Miss Vinnie Ream. Hello, Mr. President. Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you. I've been hearing about you. Uh, you're a sculptress. Yes, sir. Oh, sit down here. <laughs> and you want to sculpt me? Yes, sir. Why me, Miss Ream? Surely there are prettier subjects. For me, Mr. President, there is no other subject. There is only you. Well, you're very young, and you're a long life ahead. I think you may find many others. Well, I hope that I do, sir, but uh, first there must be you. I, I see nothing but you. Every piece of work that I begin, no, no matter what it is, ends being you. My teacher is growing impatient with me. Clark Mills is your teacher. Yes, sir. I uh, study with him every day after I finish my work at the post office. Do you like it at the post office? It is necessary that I work. I, I don't mind it. But you'd rather be sculpting. Yes, sir. It's my life's work. I'm certain of that. <laughs> Your life's work. You're very fortunate, Miss Ream, to have it revealed to you so early. At your age, I didn't think that I would ever know why the good Lord sought fit to put me on this earth. I'm still not sure that I know the why of it. Mr. President, you need only walk through that door to the people who wait outside and they'll tell you. <laughs> I can tell you, sir. Can you? 
Well, tell me then, Miss Ream. You are here to guide our nation, to preserve our union, and to lead us safely and together through the fire. Of course, sir, I cannot truly know the heavy burden that you bear. Only you can know that. Only you can feel it crushing down upon your shoulders. It occurs to me that by my coming here, I may be adding to that weight. You, you must forgive me. I am only a poor girl who is perhaps too ambitious, too presumptuous, and unthinking. I will go now. Thank you for allowing me to come here. Now, wait. No, no, don't go. You wanted to ask me to pose for you. You going to leave without even making a request? I think there are far too many requests made of you, Mr. President. Then do not ask. But do not go either, Miss Reem. Tell me about yourself. You're from the West, is that right? Yes, sir. I was born in Wisconsin, and I've lived in Arkansas and Missouri. You've traveled much for one so young. My father was a surveyor. Was? He was taken ill. He's no longer able to work. And that's why you're a clerk in the post office. Yes, sir. <laughs> do you really want to know all this? Oh, yes, yes, I do. Well, then I'll tell you. <laughs> I, um, I try to live my life with a sense of purpose. I work, I study... I go evenings to the soldiers in the hospitals. I sing in church choirs, and I'm paid for it. I write letters to some of the prisoners of war at Fort Delaware. There's no pay for that. Oh, no, Mr. President, not, not in money anyway, but uh, I think I easily get as much from them and more than they do from me. War is a terrible thing, sir, and I, I certainly don't need to tell you that, but it is, and I can't help saying it. The losses. Not only the young men who die or who are wounded, but it's those who are captured and put in prisons. They feel, sir, that they're forgotten men. That even while they still walk and breathe, life has ended for them. It goes on all around them, and yet they're no part of it. It's one of the worst things about war, the horrible waste. I despise waste. That's why I try to use every moment of my life, sir. Uh, do you suppose that, uh, that you could manage to come here every day... Between 12.30 and 1 o'clock? Here, sir? Yes, Miss Reem, here, uh, to sculpt me. Oh, I could, sir. That half hour is the time in the day that I rest, so no one ever comes to see me then. You may have your tools sent over, but it can be for that half hour only. That's all I can give you, Miss Reem. Thank you, Mr. President. Oh, it's I who thank you for sparing me the time. <laughs> Tomorrow... I mean, sir, may we begin tomorrow? Oh, yes. Goodbye, Miss Ream. Goodbye. Uh, Mr. President. Yes? Sir, if you're going to do any reading, uh, please have someone light the lights for you. You'll ruin your eyes. It's the first lesson that an artist learns, that light is precious. <laughs> but I'm not an artist, Miss Ream. No, Mr. President, but you are precious, like the light. Do you mind my watching you? Oh, no, sir. I only wish you'd watch more often. How long has it been now? Oh, nearly five months. Oh. It was winter when I began. Now it's spring. The war is over. And I'm almost finished. I like what you've done. Uh, I like what, what I appear to be to you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. When, when you look up at me that way, you remind me of someone... My son, Willie. Willie died. I know, sir. 
I'm sorry. Don't, don't, don't look away. But, but I am so sorry, sir. Sorry that I remind you. No, no, I'm happy to be able to see him again. Even a little of him within you, Vinnie. Vinnie. Yes, sir? Uh, you're leaving? It's nearly time, sir. Why do you think, Vinnie, that it is that so many of the little ones, the innocents, are taken so early from us? I don't know, sir. Of course not. None of us know. Perhaps it's not for us to know. I hate it. But I wouldn't wish for the power to stop it. Sir? I've had the power... To give life or take it away in this war. With a few words, I could save a deserter from the firing squad. I could approve the strategy of a battle and cause thousands to die. It weighs on me, Vinnie. Most terribly, it weighs. A man should not have this power. It is God's alone. These many soldiers have been at my mercy all this long war. Now it's finally ended. Please, God, don't give me the power over the children. They couldn't be in better human hands than yours, Mr. President. You are God's tool on this earth. I truly believe that. I wish that I could. It's over, Vinnie. Why do I feel such dread and foreboding? Why? I don't know, sir. Hmm. Well, it's time you were leaving, Vinnie. Uh, what will you do this evening? Well, I shall be singing in a special Good Friday service, sir. I wish that I could hear you. But I must attend the theater this evening. I will see you Monday. Uh, yes, yes, Monday. Goodbye, Vinnie. Goodbye, sir. The president has been shot! Shot! The president has been shot! The president has been shot! Ma! Ma! Vinny, what is it? A bad dream? Did you hear those men outside? No. They were shouting that the president had been shot. No, Vinny, no. It can't be true. Most likely those men had too much to drink. But why would they say such a terrible thing? Well, there's no knowing why people do the things they do. You go back to bed, Vinny. You catch your death cold. But, Ma, I have the feeling that the president really has been shot. And that he's dying. And then I'll never see him again. Go back to bed, Vinny. In the morning, that feeling will be gone. The president is fine and well. You'll see. Just wait for the morning. Yes, Ma. Only right now, it seems the morning will never come. again, and here's the fourth act of Vinnie Ream. One year after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Congress commissioned an artist to do a life-size statue of the martyred president. They chose Vinnie Ream, and she became the first woman to be commissioned by the United States government for a work of art. The selection caused great controversy because of her youth and seeming inexperience. Nevertheless, amid the outcry, she set up a beautiful, flower-filled studio in the Capitol building and began to sculpt. 
Generals, senators, and sightseers all flocked to get a glimpse of Vinnie Ream, the girl artist, at work. Her dark hair flowing down her back and a white dove perched on either shoulder. Vinnie, you're working very late this evening. Hello, Senator. Yes, it's been a long day. I've had a group of surgeons here for hours. They've just left. Surgeons? Before I begin to drape the statue, I want to make certain that it's anatomically correct. The doctors were giving me their opinions. They all agree that it's just as it should be. You've worked so hard, Vinnie. I, I don't know how to tell you what I have to say. What is it? What's wrong? I've brought such trouble to you. Oh, tell me, please, what's happened? Late today, Congress passed a resolution closing your studio. <gasps> the statue is to be removed. You were to be informed in the morning, but I had to come and tell you now. It's because of me, all because of me. I don't understand. They, they cannot move the statue. It will be ruined. They cannot close my studio. I must work. Why are they doing this to me? It concerns President Johnson's impeachment. I voted against it, Vinnie. The president is saved. The, the radicals are enraged. They think that you influenced my vote. Uh, I cannot let it happen. I isn't there someone I could go to? You'd, you'd have to go into the lion's den. I'll do that. The only one who could help you is the most feared and hated man in this city. Maybe even in the country. Who? Thaddeus Stevens. I'll send him a message asking him to come and see me. He won't come. He certainly won't if I don't ask him. Vinnie, you, you've succeeded in doing many things that I did not think possible, but this you cannot do. Give up. In a while, after things have quieted, then maybe you will be allowed to return and complete your work. But, but for now, it's over. Not yet. Not until I speak with Thaddeus Stevens. Have you ever seen the man? No. Oh, he's hideous, cruel, and, and vindictive. They say he's dying, but slowly, because even death fears him. When he approaches, dragging that club foot... Everyone shakes with dread. I won't. I will ask him to come here, and he will come. You are Thaddeus Stevens? I am. And you are Miss Vinnie Ream? Yes, sir. Why have you asked me here? I wanted you to see something. The statue. Come. This is it? Yes. Why is it so dark? Nearly black. And dripping wet like that. I was preparing to wrap it in towels and leave it. I've been ordered to go. You know that. If no one comes after me to keep the statue damp and pliant, then it will dry out, harden, crumble, and be lost. Gone. It suits the man, black as it is. Oh, no. It must one day be carved in the purest white marble. I was to go to Italy to find the perfect piece, but now, now... I... Now you will not go. So it seems. So it is. You asked me here to see your statue. I have seen it. I will take my leave. Wait, please. It is not my statue. Are you saying that you're not the artist? I am the artist. This is my work... But it is the people statue. It belongs to them. It should be placed in the Capitol Rotunda so that everyone who desires might see it and remember the man that it represents. But that is not to be. 
And I don't understand why. I was hoping you could tell me. You should have stayed with your clay, Miss Ream, and not mixed in matters that do not concern you. What matters? The impeachment of Andrew Johnson. I can say quite truthfully that I never discussed anything of that nature with Senator Ross. What is your relationship to the senator? He boards in my family's home. He's my friend. He's helped me. To do what? To achieve a goal. Realize a dream. He introduced me to Clark Mills, who taught me to sculpt. And the senator arranged for me to meet Abraham Lincoln, who taught me about greatness and sadness and the depths of a human soul. I, I consider myself among the few fortunate ones who knew Abraham Lincoln when he lived. He, he turned my selfish and childish ambitions into something very different. He is dead, and there are thousands, millions, who will never know him. I want to give them a, at least a, a poor replica of him, some small awareness and knowledge of the man. You have the power to deprive them of even that. And if you do that, Thaddeus Stevens, I for one shall hate you forever. I have been hated. Have you ever been loved? No. Save Abraham Lincoln's memory for his people, and you will be. Save this piece of clay, you mean? If you truly believe that, that it is no more than that, then we're both wasting our time here. How long uh, before it would be finished? There's still much work to be done, Another six months on this, and uh, then it would be taken to Italy. The marble would have to be found, and well, finally from this model, the statue would be carved in the, in the marble. That could take as long as uh, two years. So then there is nearly three more years of work to be done. No. I've been ordered by Congress to stop work. There's no more work at all to be done. Three years is a long time. It can be. I wish I had them ahead of me. But I do not. I will not see this statue completed, Miss Rehm. But you will. And the people will. You, you mean I don't have to go? You will stay on here until you go to Italy. But Congress and the resolution... Other resolutions can be passed, Miss Rehm. This is your studio. For as long as you need it. Thank you, sir. I still think the darkness suits him. Oh, no, no, I see him in pure white. Perhaps you could find a piece of veined marble, Miss Reem. We're none of us all one thing. Goodbye. Good evening, sir. A crowd stood outside the Capitol. They were waiting to be allowed inside for the unveiling of Vinnie Reem's life-size statue of Lincoln. There was not room for all of them to enter, but still they stood in the rain. The sound of the Marine Band playing a dirge drifted faintly out to them. Ladies and gentlemen, four years ago... A little girl from Wisconsin occupied a modest position in the post office department at $600 a year. She had faith that she could do something better. Congress, with almost equal faith and liberality, gave her an order for the statue of the late President Lincoln. 
That statue and the artist are now before you. Justice Davis of the Supreme Court will now unveil the statue. The artist, Miss Vinnie Ream. Thank you. Thank you all. This night will live forever in my memory. I shall never forget a moment of it. When all of us here tonight, all of us who were privileged to share this earth with Abraham Lincoln are gone, I hope that this statue will evoke the man in the eyes and hearts of all who come after us all who pass by here. And I hope that they too shall never forget. Thank you. The Mutual Radio Theater is brought to you five nights a week at this time. Tonight's original radio play, Vinnie Ream, was written by Pamela Russell and produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Your host was Lauren Green. Our stars were Joan McCall, Robert Rockwell, and Jeff Corey. Featured in the cast were Jack Manning, Mary Jane Croft, Stephen Roberts, Jane Webb, Ray Tosco, and Stan Waxman. The Mutual Radio Theater theme was composed by Nelson Riddle. John Harlan speaking. The Elliot Lewis production of Mutual Radio Theater is a presentation of CVI. This is Andy Griffith. Join us tomorrow at this same time. I've got another story I think you'll find riotously amusing. That was the Mutual Radio Theater. It's heard on April 28, 1980 on the Mutual Broadcast System. And the name of that episode was Vinnie Reed. Wasn't that good? And it was really nice that they made that, that effort to resurrect uh, radio drama and comedy during that period. Uh, a couple just interesting notes here. Joan McCall starred as Vinnie, and I didn't know much about her. She was born in Kentucky in 1943. Uh, according to the historical notes I have here, she was, is a prolific screenwriter, and she's written and produced over 200 scripts for film and television. As an actress, Joan McCall starred on Broadway as the ingenue lead in Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park with Sylvia Sidney and Judd Hirsch. That was directed by Mike Nichols, by the way. And she also starred in Star Spangled Girl which was another Neil Simon play. And that one featured Anthony Perkins and Richard Benjamin. So she's been around a while and in show business. And she was a great actress. I really loved her voice in this, the innocence of it. It was just outstanding. Jeff Corey uh, was also heard in the broadcast tonight as President Lincoln. He was uh, born in 1914 in Brooklyn. He was a film and television character actor as well as one of the top acting teachers in America. 
One of the things that was interesting about him when I was looking at his biography, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but he joined the United States Navy during the Second World War, and he was assigned to the Navy Photographic Service in 1943, and he was placed on the aircraft carrier Yorktown as a motion picture combat photographer. He earned three citations while serving during the war, including one for shooting footage on the Yorktown during a kamikaze attack on the ship. The citation, which was awarded in October 1945, read, This sequence of a kamikaze attempt on the carrier Yorktown, done in the face of grave danger, is one of the great picture sequences of the war in the Pacific and reflects the highest credit upon Corey and the U.S. Navy Photographic Service. One of the other things he was noted for is he was one of the guys blacklisted back during the McCarthy era. He appeared before the House on Un-American Activities in Los Angeles in September of 1951 and refused to testify invoking his Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, the reason, of course, he refused to testify is they wanted to know if he knew of any other communists. He apparently had been a member of the Communist Party before the Communist Party was the Communist Party as we know it today. It was more of a labor party back in the uh, late 30s, early 40s. And uh, he had already ceased his association with it long before he was called before this committee. But anyway, because he did invoke his Fifth Amendment rights, the movie industry had ruled that anyone who uh, invoke their constitutional right not to testify, would be blacklisted. And Corey was missing out on an entire decade of work in films and television during the 1950s. And finally, Robert Rockwell played uh, her, uh, her teacher there. I can't think of his name right offhand. Of course, Robert Rockwell, we hear as Mr. Boynton. Uh, Jeff Chandler was the original Mr. Boynton on radio, and then when he left the role, Robert Rockwell took it over and also did it on television. In fact, it really typecasted him. It made other dramatic roles uh, difficult for him to get because he was so well-known as Mr. Boynton on Our Miss Brooks. But even so, he did. Uh, he was a contract player for Republic Studios. He appeared in over 350 television shows over 50 years. And he actually uh, he had another TV uh, series, too, called Man from Blackhawk. I remember that. But I did not know this. He actually appeared on the Broadway stage opposite Jose Ferrer in the 1946 Broadway production of Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> what a great, uh, great thing to have on your uh, resume if you're an actor. Appearing with Jose Ferrer in one of his uh, iconic, iconic roles. When I hear the rain a-coming down It makes me sad and blue Was on a rainy night like this That flow said we were through I told her how I loved her and I begged her not to go But another Changed her mind So I said goodbye To flow Alone within Myself tonight 
by the music it is time for gun smoke everybody time to travel back to the old west we're in dodge city kansas the year 
1874, walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to meet up with Doc and Kitty and Chester and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. Have a good one tonight and wait till you hear the sound quality on this one. This was originally broadcast on CBS on the 25th of March in 1956. This is sort of a dark story tonight. Why not? Everything we're doing. Well, Vinnie Ream was pretty upbuilding. Or uplifting, I should say. But uh, this one's a little dark, and the name of it is The Hanging Man. And here it comes. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Mr. Dillon, he said to tell you he'd meet you there. From what you say, there isn't much use for either one of us, Chester. No, sir. Poor old Mr. Sawyer, he looked long dead to me. Right in his office, huh? Yes, sir, that's where the boy found him. Looked like he pulled a chair into the middle of the room and stood on it. Hanging sure is a bad way to die, ain't it? I guess when a man wants to kill himself, it doesn't matter much how he does it. No, sir. How come there's no crowd outside? Well, I told the boy to go on home and not to talk to anybody. Oh, good. And then I went in, cut Mr. Sawyer down, and come looking for you and Doc. Uh-huh. The uh, door wasn't locked, huh? No, sir. Hello, Matt. I guess you're too late this time, Doc. Yes, an hour anyway. I don't understand it, Matt. Sawyer was doing fine in his hide business. He yeah. didn't have any problems at all that I know of. Maybe it was his wife dying, Doc. Oh, no, no. That was a year ago, Chester. He'd got used to that. Maybe he hadn't. Maybe he was just saving it all up for this. Well, we'll never know now. Uh, Chester. Yes, sir? When uh, 
when you found him was uh, that chair where it is now. Yes, sir. It ain't been moved, Mr. Dillon. He stood on it and then kicked it over, just like that. Mm-hmm. That's a bad way to die. I sure wouldn't ever tie it, Doc. Well, I hope not, just... No, what I mean is, supposing you kicked the chair out from under you and then changed your mind. Oh, wouldn't that be fearsome? Probably happens to a lot of suicides, Chester. Uh, Doc. Oh, yes, man. Are there any bruises on him? Well, I don't know, man. I haven't looked. Uh, let me see. Uh, of course, hanging doesn't bruise, but... Wait, no, wait a minute. See, there is a lump here. On the back of his head. Now, how do you get that? Sawyer always kept a tin box over in that cabinet, Doc. What's that got to do with this lump on his head? He kept his ready cash in that box. It's not there now. You mean somebody stole it? Now, who'd do that? Whoever walked in here hit him in the head and hoisted him up on that rope. I knew old Sawyer pretty well. He wasn't the kind of a man who'd kill himself. By heaven, I think you're right, Matt. He didn't have any enemies. Whoever did this is going to be mighty hard to find. That was an awful little bunch of mourners at the burying today, wasn't it, Mr. Dillon? Well, I guess people kind of shy away from suicides, Chester. Mm-hmm. Poor old man, Sawyer. Seems pretty mean letting everybody go on believing he went and hung himself. He won't mind, Chester. But if the man who killed him thinks he got by with it, he just might get careless. Mm, yes, sir, he might. Hey, who's that Miss Kitty's walking with? I don't know. She's right pretty. For Dodge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, Chester, I wouldn't put it exactly that way to her if I were you. Oh, well, I didn't mean nothing by it. I, I would... Oh, Matt. Chester. Oh, Miss Kitty. How are you, Kitty? Cora, I'd like you to meet Marshall Dillon and Chester Proudfoot. This is Cora Bell. How do you do? Uh, hello. <laughs> Either of you ever come around to the Long Branch, you'd have met Cora a week ago. Well, we've been pretty busy, Kitty. Oh, sure. I hope I'll see you over there soon, Marshall. And you too, Chester. Oh, I'll, I'll be there, Miss Cora. <laughs> Even tonight, maybe. Good. Mine. Kitty, I promised Mel I'd meet him at Delmonico's. I'd better hurry along. Uh-huh. I'll see you tonight. Bye. Uh, bye. Bye-bye. Matt, you know who this Mel is she's meeting? No. Mel Tucker. Well, uh, Mel Tucker? That no good slack jawed water. They're in love, slap, Chester. Love, my Wild in love. Oh. Ever since they met a week ago. I just can't believe it. About her, I mean. Yeah, sometimes there's no accounting for women, Chester. Uh, heard Mel Tucker used to be something of a man, Matt. He still carries a gun. Oh, that's not exactly what I meant. Oh, I guess he was all right, before the whiskey took it out of him. One thing, he's crazy jealous. About the worst I've ever seen. Oh, well, he ought to be. She got a look at a good man, she might come to her senses. How'd they get started, Kitty? Oh, Mel Tucker was over in Newton, and when he got on the Santa Fe for Dodge, Cora was on it, too. They're even talking of getting married, Matt. Do you think they will? As soon as Tucker gets hold of some money, they will. And it won't be very soon. That man's been broke for three years. I don't know, Chester. A man like Tucker might do anything for money. Mr. Dillon, you you ain't thinking... We'll wait and see, Chester. It's all we can do. 
Now there's something I've been looking for, Mr. Dillon. Oh, what? Over here in the store window. Huh? Look, Mr. Jonas finally got them in, see? Oh, you mean those paper collars and cuffs? No, no, them boot jacks. Oh. That's <laughs> pretty fancy. Yeah, they're metal, Mr. Dillon. And they cost three dollars. You could make one of your own with ten cents worth of wood. Yeah, yeah but these is iron. They last forever. Chester, wait a minute. Look inside there. Hmm? Right at the counter there. Why, where Why, it's Mel Tucker. And look at that pile of stuff he's bought. Yeah. And look at the cash he's paying for it with. Mr. Dillon, you really think he did it? I'm going to try to find out. How? No, he's coming out now. I guess he's going to pick up his stuff later. You'll need a wagon. Oh, Tucker. Oh, Hello, Marshal. I, uh, notice you're buying a lot of new clothes. You getting married? <laughs> yeah, I sure am, Marshal. Right soon. Going after Cora now, buy her some stuff. Well, that's fine. I didn't know you were working. Well, I'm not. Not here in Dodge. Uh-huh. I made me some money over Newton, Marshal. You did, huh? Yeah. Huh. Well, I don't see as it's anybody's business how, Marshal. You will after you've been in jail a while. Jail? What are you talking about? Old man Sawyer was murdered, Tucker, and I happen to know that you did it. You out of your head? I got all the proof I need. You're a liar. The judge won't think so. Well, you can't arrest me, Marshal. It, it, it ain't right. Might go easier on you if you'd admit it, Tucker. I ought to kill you. You couldn't and you know it. Now start walking. You know where the jail is. Hi, Matt. Oh, come on in, Doc. I'm just killing a little time, Matt, so if you're busy... You no, 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 sit down, sit down. There's nothing going on here. Oh, well, thank you, thank you, man. Uh, where's Chester? <laughs> He's probably overworking on Mr. Jonas again. Jonas? Well, what for? Yeah, that metal boot jack. Chester won't pay more than a dollar, and Jonas is holding up for two fifty. It's been going on like that for a week. Ever since you threw Mel Tucker in jail, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's right. He has shown any signs of weakening, Matt? I won't admit a thing, Doc. Cora been to see you? Mm-hmm, every day. But uh, that's beginning to work on Tucker. What is? Well, being in jail, he can't ride herd on her the way he's been doing. Kitty was right. He's a mighty jealous man. You still think he did it, Matt? Yeah, I do. It looks like I'm going to have a hard time proving it. Mm, you sure? <clears throat> hey, Mr. Dillon, have you seen... Oh, oh Doc, says Tim. Don't see any boot, Jack Chester. Never mind that. You better get on over to Bob Randall's freight office. Huh? What for? Autopsy, I guess. He's dead, Doc. What happened, Chester? Well, sir, I was walking by his office, and his wife went out and said she dropped by to see him and found him hanging there. Hanging? Just like old man Sawyer. Exact same thing. 
I went in and cut him down. This time I took a look around. He'd been hit on the head all right, and somebody tried to open his safe. They didn't get nothing, but they'd sure been working on him. Well, Matt? Wait here a minute, Doc. I'll go over with you. Marshal, when are you going to give up and leave me out of here? You're up, Tucker. Mean it? Yeah, I made a mistake about you. Hmm. <laughs> I've been telling you that. What finally changed your mind? What do you care? You're free. Now get going. Get married, do anything you want. I sure will. Just tell you one thing, Marshal. What? I ain't gonna forget what you've done to me. I'm already thinking up how to pay you back someday. I said get out of here, Tucker. Busy, Kitty? No. Sit down, man. Uh, What's on your mind? Oh, plenty. You didn't enjoy having to turn Mel Tucker loose yesterday, did you? Yeah, there wasn't anything else I could do, Kitty. Uh, you've made mistakes before, Matt. You don't usually take it so hard. Kitty, Mel Tucker's perfectly capable of having killed old man Sawyer. But he sure didn't do it. Uh, Sometimes I gotta do my hunting like a lion in a tree. Just lie still and wait. And you don't like that, do you? <laughs> I've done enough of it, Kitty. Yeah, I know. Well, I'll say one thing about Mel Tucker, Matt. A week in jail sure made a change in him. Oh, what do you mean? He's been meek as a lamb since he got out. About what? About Cora. Look at them, all three of them standing at the bar over there, real friendly-like. Who's that other man? Well, that's Dan Dressler. He and Cora have been together a lot lately. Oh? Well, where'd he come from? I don't know. He rode into town a day or so after you threw Tucker in jail. Maybe Tucker doesn't know about Cora and him, huh? They're just friends. They act like a big, happy family, Matt. I see. Uh, Tucker and Cora still planning on getting married? Well, not for a while. Cora says they're broke. Broke? Uh -huh. For $300? Who's got $300? Mel Tucker. It's what he had when I jailed him. It's what I returned to him yesterday. Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? Maybe it does, Kitty. Uh, look, will you do something for me? What? It won't be easy, and it'll make you look pretty bad. Then it must be important or you wouldn't ask me to do it. It is, Kitty. You see that table over there in the corner just inside the hallway? Yes, sure. I want you to get Cora and Tucker and this dressler over there. Offer to buy him a drink or something, huh? And then what? Let's go out back before they happen to see us. I'll tell you there. Quiet with this door, Chester. Yes, sir, I will. 
That's good. All right, now follow me. Good thing this hallway ain't creepy. Now this is far enough. They at the table yet? Yeah, I think so. I sure do hope this notion works, Mr. Dunn, and I hope Miss Kitty don't get hurt out of it. I'll try to stop anything like that, Chester. Look, I'm going to get closer. You wait and then follow me, huh? Yes, sir. Appreciate your buying us all a drink, Kitty, but I don't know why you're doing it. Kitty's a nice girl, man. Not enough reason? Yeah, I guess so. Most people I know don't do nothing for you without wanting something out of it. No, Dad. Guess that's right, Carl. What? I'm not a nice girl. There's something I want. There, you see? I told you. What do you want, Kitty? I want Mel Tucker to know about you and Dan Dressler. To know about me and Dan... I don't like to watch a man being made a fool of. The way you're doing to Tucker. What are you talking about? No, no. You better explain yourself, Kitty. I will, Tucker. You think Dan Dressler's a friend, don't you? Go on, keep talking. Well, he's a friend, all right. But Cora's friend, not yours. They were out together every night. You were in jail and every day, too. That's a lie. Shut up, leave her talk, Dressler. Everybody but... in Dodge knows what they've been doing except you. I guess I'm the only person who's not afraid to tell you. Do you think she's in love with you? Kitty! Get up, Dressler. Oh, wait a minute, Tucker. You ain't going to listen to that fool. You're going to get up or I'm going to shoot you right there. No! You better stop it, Mr. Dillon. I can't, Chester, not yet. All right, Dressler. I paid you to hang Bob Randall. I didn't pay you to make love to my girl. All right, that's it. Get up now, fool, Tucker. That's enough, Tucker. He was going to shoot Cora, Matt. Chester. Yes, sir. Get Tucker's gun. Yes, sir, I will. Dressler dead, Mr. Dillon? Yeah. You sure Wallop Tucker a good one? No, it was going to kill me. The marshal hadn't hit him, he'd have killed me. I'm sorry, I had to do it, Carl. No, it was going to kill me. He shouldn't have been jealous of me. He shouldn't have been jealous of me. Cora, you hired Dan Dressler to hang Randall, didn't you? Yes, but Mel made me do it. But you're an accomplice. I only did what Mel told me. It wasn't my idea. I didn't murder the man. I loved Mel. I had to do it. I loved him. I loved him. And it's just too bad you loved him, Cora. Because now you're as guilty as he is. Come on. William Conrad. You know, on the frontier, a newcomer could almost always find some land and a little water to build himself a ranch. But next week, trouble comes to Dodge when two men claim title to the same area. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Virginia Gregg, and John Daner. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty.
Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. Always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time we get together. In the meantime, here's the Kingston Trio with another hanging song. Throughout history, there have been many songs written about the eternal triangle. This next one tells the story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, Condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Poor boy, you're bound to die. Met her on the mountain, there I took her life. Met her on the mountain, stabbed her with my knife. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie, poor boy, you're bound to die. This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be. Hadn't it been for Grayson, I'd have been in Tennessee. Well, now, boy, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. Oh, boy, you're bound to die. Well, now, This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be Down in some lonesome valley, hanging from a white oak tree Hang down your head, Tom, to Hang down your head and cry Hang down your head, Tom, to Poor boy, you're bound to die Oh, well, now, down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Poor boy, you're.
bound to die Poor boy, you're bound to die Poor boy, you're bound to die Poor boy, you're bound to die All right, Chester is uh, signaling me that we are all out of time, so we're going to gather up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. We will be back next week with our archive show, and we'll be back in two weeks with an all-new show with new uh, offerings. And I have a lot of new shows that I've acquired over the last month or so. All right, everybody, that's it. This is Bob Bro, and I am so glad you stopped by this week, and I am so glad you met me.